This is Abigail Favalli, and you're listening to George Fox Talks Culture. I'm here in the studio with my friend Isaiah. I mean, Isaiah's not in the studio, unfortunately, just his his image. Um, and Isaiah works in higher education at Utah State, which is the best university in Utah. Definitely not the University of Utah. No one would ever make that mistake. <laughs> no. um, and he's also doing his MA at the University of Notre Dame, where he's working on the intersection between Catholic social teaching and race. So I'm super excited to have Isaiah here to talk about critical race theory. So we're just going to have a hoedown about what CRT is, why people are so worked up about it, how should Christians think about it. Um, and I, yeah, I'm just really excited to to see how this conversation goes. So welcome, Isaiah. It's good to see you. Thank you very much. Good to be here. Yeah. Awesome. In the studio. Just Yeah, in the play. studio. <laughs> um, okay. Well, I guess... I guess the most obvious place to start is what is critical race theory? I mean, there's so much controversy around it right now, right? I mean, I, I saw like I was in McDonald's in Eastern Oregon <laughs> driving to Idaho and I saw this car with a bumper sticker that was like ban CRT. And I was like, dang, it's on bumper stickers in McDonald's? Like what's going on? So what, what the heck is critical race theory? Yeah, that's a great question, Abby. And I know once it hits the bumper stickers, it's kind of game on, I guess, from there. So the, the best place to start really with CRT is to think about it historically. I think that's how I like to go about it. So really what you're dealing with is legal scholars um, in the 70s and the 80s who are looking at race, racism, um, relationships of power, but in a legal context. So you're seeing it, so someone like Derek Bell, who's a sort of a pivotal player in this movement, um, they're looking at race in, it's more of an academic thing in journals. So you have like the Yale Review, the Har Harvard Review, things like that. And essentially, these scholars sort of begin with the critique of liberalism, a critique of um, how race is understood in practice and policy and in law. And so they're really looking at it from the standpoint of, okay, we have Plessy versus Ferguson. We have the separate but equal cases. We have Brown versus the Board of Education, which folks like Thurgood Marshall, um, a black Supreme Court justice uh, figure, and of course, Derek Bell, who, who sort of trained under and with him, who are basically saying like, you know, these changes in the law haven't resulted in changes on the ground. So what you'll hear a lot in these circles is something like a, a legal realism. Hmm. Um, and this is this idea that, you know, you hear this um, in certain postmodern circles. It's like sort of the, you have, say, a phenomenon, so that which appears in the culture. But then how are these words used? What's the reality like with communities? And the critique was, is like, look, if we are to stick with our example of Brown versus the board is, Hey, look, racism hasn't gone away. It's sort of been repackaged. So we have the privatization of school. So for those lovers of the blind side and movies like that, that's really kind of a microcosm of 
what occurred, right? So in the 60s and the 70s in the American South, you have this emergence of private school education that can continue to hold the segregation policies mm-hmm. and laws, but they've, they're protected by the sort of private privatization of schools. And then, of course, you have, um, it's probably, you know, the busing system. So I have a lot of friends, my family members who live who lived in L.A., say, during the 70s and the 80s, where all of a sudden, if you were living in South Central L.A., Crenshaw, you know, so predominantly Black areas, you were going to be bused into, say, Granada Hills or the Valley schools, Kennedy, these kinds of schools. So hmm. they really wanted to argue that. And meaning liberal, they're not necessarily meaning liberal and sort of conservative. They mean sort of this idea of the majority view of politics that says we can sort of move to a sort of colorblind approach and we can make laws and things that um, essentially kind of racism will kind of just go away if we make these sort of moves. So critical race theory emerges in that context. And obviously on the $1.98 version um, that I like to say is it's really a system of scholars and thinkers and activists who are interested in the transformation of race, racism, and power, um, particularly, but not always, in the United States. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, it seems it seems like critical race theory is really tied to American history specifically, right? So um, I was reading some Derek Bell in preparation for our conversation I emailed you. I was like, "Hey, you know what? You know, give me some reading." And you're, you like get like a good professor. You just give me like like here's a hundred oh, pages of yes. reading. Yeah, like here's entire. No, anyway, it was <laughs> awesome. So, um, I so I was reading some of Derek Bell's book, "Faces at the Bottom of the Well," right? Um, and and he so one word that I noticed he repeated a lot is the idea of, like the word permanent. So he talks mm-hmm. about racism in the United States specifically as being permanent, like permanently part of American society um, because America's foundation is in this race-based kind of slavery um, and that whole, the whole kind of system of whiteness versus blackness that was in, that's been endemic in America since its beginning. And so you can't like really root it out. Um, But I'm, I'm really interested in that idea of its permanence. Um, yeah, what do you what do you think about that? Like what's I guess what's the argument for it being permanent? Like what's the evidence that it's permanent and not something that's still a problem but we should seek to overcome? Yeah, that's a fantastic question. And I think what we really have to do in this case is kind of put on the philosophy hat and ask like what is racism? Um one of the things well, the way that it's described in here uh folks like Brian uh, or I should say Lincoln Rice from Marquette and, and the scholars that he's worked with um, really talk, they're really building it. I think the best definition is they're building it from the great 20th century theologian, philosopher, really everything, which is Bernard Lonergan's definition of culture. And it's this mm-hmm. idea that ultimately it's a, it's a way of seeing, right? Mm-hmm. And so when we're looking at racism, it's a, what we'd say in Christian circles, it's a sort of exegesis or an interpretive interpretive key for how we read you know, darker skin or persons of color or communities or things like that. Um, and it's really as a community, as a sort of collective view of these different races. And so obviously th- some of these views are going to, the most prevalent one is going to be a sort of superiority of the majority race. Mm-hmm. And it's not necessarily at the level of conscious thoughts, right? It could be simply, you know, I, I like to think about it like 
when you see a person of color who's who's poor and going to school, like what do you see? Why are they poor? Why are they in this situation? And so racism in this case is is more dealing, it's more at the level of ontology, more at the level of existence of like what do we see as a collective community in the United States when we see color? Uh, that's kind of the first sort of big thing. As far as Derek Bell's case, that there's a sort of permanency, as you allude to, or another word that critical race scholars and his disciples like to say is a sort of ordinariness to that, yeah. mm-hmm. to this, is basically, I, I, w- I think it's the best thing to do is to go back to or, or rely on um, historians of Europe. So Brad Gregory, who's at the University of Notre Dame, has written a great book um, basically on how the, the world that we're in became secular. Mm-hmm. And specifically, he looks at, or one of the areas that he looks at is modernity, but United States, right? The United States, if you think about it, just from a historical standpoint, for us who are in the religious circles, is it's really sort of a, a radical move or a departure away from Christendom, hmm. right? So if you were in England, Elizabethan England, if you were in Germany, right, the Holy Roman Empire, things like that, one of the fundamental things of being a German or being English is that you're baptized, Hmm. right? You're Hmm. baptized into the church, then you're a part of the state. There's a sort of wedding between the two. The United States is really the first practice of laws and policies that is a departure from that tradition and that really says at a basic level, how do we define communities in a secular way, ways that don't have to necessarily to appeal to transcendental Hmm. values, so in that sense, the first thing that they do, and it's not initial. So, you know, if you think about the, the early founders of America, they see themselves as Europeans, hmm. right? They don't see themselves as white, right? They see themselves mm-hmm. as English or French and things like this. So for them, it was kind of a slow moving over time of, well, we're English, right? And then you keep moving on and it's like, well, now we're something called a United States of, you know, because you're having 1776, you're having sort of the birth of the nation state. And as it's being created in its laws and its policies of what it means to be a part of the United States, right off the bat, the folks who were sort of native or born here are excluded in a sort of legal way. Mm-hmm. Um, already there's questions of labor. Who's going to build the new the new world. And so you can read people like De Las Casas early on mm-hmm. in the Catholic tradition, um, or you can fast forward and read different um, figures that were coming out of the second and third great awakening and thinking about, oh, well, the most obvious thing between the native population and eventually those who came from the Atlantic slave trade is skin. Mm-hmm. So it's a pragmatic move initially to say, well, we're the, we're the, English, but then eventually they, they, they've adopted new, they've sort of disregarded their European tradition mm-hmm. in favor of this new one. So at the core of it, I think what Bell is saying, and he doesn't necessarily go into all of, uh, all of this initially, which is our roots in a sense, you could almost say, and, and J. Cameron Carter makes this argument, it's, it is sort of racist in the sense that it doesn't have a necessary connection between, like I said, transcendental identities like human dignity and all these things. And it's more built in the sort of surface level of difference. And that's how communities are being 
separated. This is how the whole economic system is moving. And of course, the labor that's working for the United States is free. And so, and one of those things that they all have in common, they're either indentured servants, Mm -hmm. right? Or they're black folks or they're natives. So this is kind of what Derek Bell is getting at. The sort of permanency is, this is the roots, you know? Mm -hmm. If you think, last thing I would say is, if you think of like for for Christian folks who want an analog to this, the the beginning of say Catholic tradition, it's going to root this in Jesus. It's going to root this in Peter. And it's not, it doesn't start out with a sort of, as Milbank would say, sort of ontology of violence, Hmm. but the story that's built and constructed in the U S is really, it's made up. Um, It's Liberty and justice and a lot of abstractions, but it's not really a sort of um, organic you know, history that say England would have. Hmm, so that's kind of what he's getting at. Right. But so, so America, the United States of America had to kind of construct its own basis for identity in a way, because there wasn't just this longstanding um, heritage they could point to. Like they're, they're making a clean, they're making a break from that European heritage. And so, right. oh, that's so interesting. I'm interested in what you, um, in, in what you said about the baptized identity, right? So um, um, that, can you say more about that? Like how um, how identity maybe used to be more, because the identity of being baptized is, that's like transnational, almost transethnic, right? Like there's this ideal in the body of Christ that once you're baptized into the body of Christ, you know, that identity supersedes these other identities. And, and you can see this even in the New Testament, right? Like with the Ethiopian eunuch, for example, who's baptized by somebody. I don't remember now. Philip. Um, Philip, yeah. thank you. I was going to say, I was going to say Philip. Um, yeah, I totally was going to say Philip. Um, <laughs> it was coming. I could see it. I, no, I read I, it on your forehead. Well, see, I actually wanted to, um, I wanted to make sure our listeners know that I know you're Catholic, but you do read the Bible. You know the ah, Bible. See, true. there this you go. So um, I've seen it. <laughs> you've seen it. You've touched it, maybe, or or I don't know. Um, okay, so say more about that. Like how maybe the this maybe especially in America, like how Christianity in America, um, if we have this idea of the baptized identity, but then it becoming sort of more about whiteness and blackness in the United States. Um, I'm interested in that connection. Yeah, uh, that's a, another great question. I think part of it is, you know, I have to be careful not to be too overly romantic about the right. idea, but we can go back to, say, Constantine um, in, what, the third or fourth century, essentially making, through the Edict of Milan, right, making Christianity sort of the legal tradition, uh, legal within the the Roman Empire. So, there's a sense where if you look at the different codes and the different legal systems, um, one of the things that you're going to see is a sort of connection between Aristotle and Rome. So the state the, or the police is the word that Aristotle uses. So the community um, are really the law and the police or the community are really wedded together by the time, you know, by the middle ages, certainly the, the early middle ages, all of the sudden baptism, because it's a part of the sort of Christian um, in, initiating project, right? So think mm-hmm. of maybe some of the aggressive ways that Charlemagne mm-hmm. um, will bring people into the empire. 
on the one hand, you're like, oh man, that's that's terrible. But on the other hand, you can say that the highest value is a sort of bringing in all of these traditions under the monarchy, right? Hmm. Under. So, of course, what does Charlemagne do? He violently, in some ways, baptizes. But this tradition is going to continue through the Middle Ages, which is, well, what what makes them English? What makes them Europeans, French, or, or what have you? Is that they are baptized in the church, and that's a huge, huge thing. It's another reason why historically you're going to get um, the common practice, even by the time of Luther, of infant baptism. Because if you're not baptized, you're not a part of the state, hmm, right? Wow. And it's also why you're going to see laws in the Middle Ages. Again, there's for all of its violence, there's a sort of value that you can recognize, say, the relationship that Aquinas is dealing with between the Catholic uh, empire and when they come across the Muslims. Right. There's a sense where they don't necessarily want to segregate them alone. They want to say, you need to be baptized. You need to come in. Mm-hmm. Right. So it's a sort of colonial <laughs> inclusive practice of like they need to be baptized to be a part mm-hmm. of the state. And of course, there's all sorts of um complicated political questions that come into play. But at the core of it, I think that's what something that you see um, for all of its ills that remains, which is to be, we'll just use England because that's kind of our descendants, um, to be baptized, to be English. There's a sort of, there's there's an, that ontological connection and baptism that unites you to Christ also unites you to the monarch. The monarch is a sort of protector of the church, right? So you're getting these two things happening simultaneously, but what it ends up doing is on a practical level, if you, if there's wars between European um empires or, or what have you they need to talk to the pope right because there's a sense mm-hmm. of like you cannot enslave this was one of the laws i forget the exact name of the law but you can see it and say the 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 coup de nur or the black code in, in louisiana or Luis Anna, which is you cannot enslave christians right so as soon as you're baptized it's a like oh no no that's a no and that's part of the reason why they're always looking for labor outside of it but then the complicated relationship with say the priest and, and, and them having this sort of evangel tradition. So it's always a tension um, because as soon as you do that, it, it's a no, you, you can't enslave. And, and you see it all the way up until the 19th century in Louisiana and the United States, Louis XIV, right? He writes the, the black code basically saying like, Hey, look, these black folks are humans. So at best fix these practices. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, that that just goes to show you how intimate um, baptism was to the 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 state identities that was kind of displaced and and moved on to, um, unfortunately, to the degree that, you know, you have sort of magisterial Protestants, but then you have sort of what's called like in scholarship like the radical Protestant traditions that were kind of flying solo. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what the sacraments meant changed. Mm-hmm. All sorts of things. But for the Catholic traditions, for the Anglican traditions, there is certainly a connection between, oh, well, if you're if you're going to be a part of England, they need to be baptized. Mm-hmm. You know, again, this is not always pretty, but right, I think right. as, as Christians, we can see sort of the, the instinct under the terrible ways that they went about this. Right. Well, it's interesting because so then that sets America apart as well, because. America doesn't have a state religion, right? right? So it's it almost sounds like 
what you're saying is America, once it begins, it immediately has the problem of what grounds our unity as a people, right? right? And you, you, like you said, you have these abstractions like liberty, equality, right? But what concretely grounds it, right? It can't be baptism. It can't right. be a monarchy. It can't be a state church. Um, so that is part of the story then that it becomes race, like race becomes a way of unifying Americans, like conscious, you know, people who kind of identify as Americans. Is that sort of part of the story that's being told about? Yeah, absolutely. Um, And you see that all the way up. There's some great articles about um, when Italians became white, right? So all of our, all of our favorite, uh, your favorite listeners and things, right? Think of movies like Braveheart. Think of movies like Gladiator. They fight about everything, but not their skin. Yeah. Right. What's 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 a bigger deal is the French and the English as ethnic yeah, traditions. Yeah. Right. Um, but there's no real. That's not going to be their first. I think. Think about Braveheart. Think about how passionate they are to be Scottish, to be mm-hmm. Irish, to be. Right. So, and you can see it even with the immigrants that come to America to to, to the different islands in New York and so forth. That identity is crucial for mm-hmm. them. Um, and so over time, you can definitely see it with the Greeks, certainly with the Italians. They start changing their names, yeah. right? So if your last name is, you know, uh, Demacopolis, right? All mm-hmm. of a sudden it's Demi, yeah. right? Because one of the things that you read in the literature is, especially here in Utah, for instance, Greeks, there are Greek commentators who would say, the one thing you don't want to be identified as in the U.S. is a Negro. Right. Because there is no getting out of that. So to the degree, because initially a lot of these Italians and so forth were sort mm-hmm. of camped in the Negro yeah. category because it was like they don't know the language, right? Mm-hmm. But they were able, to, you could say, to go stealth mode. They were able to sort right. of get rid of the last name, change the accents, um, make the, the Catholic Church a little bit more Protestant looking, mm-hmm. right? And all of a the sudden they could, they could blend in where the folks who couldn't do it were, were the black folks. Mm-hmm. So one of my arguments for this, when people ask like, is racism, you know, systemic, how do you know? That's my favorite one is look how they're changing their, their sacred. I mean, meet any Greek at a Greek festival. That's not an identity they give up easily. Yeah. So the, <laughs> the fact that they were like, okay, here's my last name. Here's my orthodoxy. Here's my, it shows you that in the U.S. there are certain privileges mm-hmm. to identifying as white, Anglo, Protestant. There's, yeah. a, there's something there that has an economic and financial um, incentive. Otherwise, there's no way you could ever persuade a, a European of any passion yeah. to get rid of that identity. Yeah, that's my, my husband's family, you know, is Italian. I think his grandfather immigrated. Um, or no, his grandfather was the first born in America. So his parents immigrated, but you know, his, his given name was Dominic, but it's Tom, right? So he took, he took the name Tom. So, um, little case study here. Yeah. little case study. Yeah. Uh, so let's say, let's talk more about this idea of racism being systemic and structural. So those are, those are kind of the, the buzzwords that we often hear in this conversation. Like, First of all, is there a difference between systemic and structural, or are those kind of just used interchangeably? Um, and also, what would be some very contemporary examples? Because even, even say, my husband's grandpa, you know, he did that, I don't know, probably the 1940s or 50s or something, you know, it wasn't very recent. And in fact, now 
they seem to be really obsessed with their Italian heritage in a way, right? So there's there's almost this like acclimation that happens, but then also wanting to keep the Italian. Well, now maybe it's different because Italian is white, I guess, right? Whereas previously, it, um, like you said, it was not necessarily considered white. Um, anyway, structural racism, Kesca say, mm -hmm. what is that? Yeah, great. another good one. So the way that I like to think of structural racism is that it is going to combine with other identities. Uh, and so it's very interesting, too, without going too far into it. Um, there's a really good book called something like When the Klan Came to South Bend or something. Hmm. But you can see this all the way up to John F. Kennedy. Like Catholics were not liked yeah. um, because they were put in the same camp. So think about it like that for, for those who come from traditional Catholic families. There were certain structures in place. Um, mm -hmm. So make the, the connection, the analog between race and, say, religious discrimination that just by their own, by the ways the laws were structured throughout the United States that kept them from participating fully, um, specifically in, in financial ways. There were certain laws like, say, a black family cannot live here, but it's, it's going to be coded in, um, you know, different real estate markets, the way that they're going to uh, basically redline, make communities, mm -hmm. the way they're going to organize communities and neighborhoods. So to me, if a lot of folks are going to argue there's different schools of thought here. But for me, the, those who are in the structural category are more going to, to lean towards that sort of ordinary permanentness of mm -hmm. all of the structures that are, uh, you know, the social, the economic, the political, every aspect of American life then is sort of racist, right? <laughs> um, versus the structural I tend to hear that more in like a Catholic encyclical context or maybe um, someone who's coming from a more religious background traditionally. Now, there's different ways to break it up. This helps me remember it. I think it'll help others. You're looking at it more like certain individuals that may have played a part. So, you know, a sinful individual who has naughty ideas on race creates a program and it has discriminatory things. But if we, we got rid of the individual, we'll make some adjustments. The U.S. isn't racist anymore hmm. versus systemic is more like, no, it's all the way down, not just in this one structure with this group who's associated with it, say, a couple of presidents. Mm -hmm. We're dealing with them as one. I like to think of more ordinary and the other one, the structural is just looking at particular. Um, typically, it ends up being like a particular policy, a particular. Okay. You're looking for the bad apple in the, in the mix. Right. Uh, versus systemic to me is really like a sort of like. We're going after the franchise, yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. So that's how I like to think of them. And it seems like that's, I mean, I, I guess if, if that's the perspective and, you know, you definitely see that in, in, um, I think the Derek Bell, um, like when I, I grabbed this, this page, it was actually highlighted in the PDF like itself. So it seems really important. Um, so he says, under this view, liberal democracy and racism in the United States are historically and even inherently reinforcing. American society as we know it exists only because of its foundation in racially based slavery, and it thrives only because racial discrimination continues. The apparent anomaly is an actual symbiosis, right? So then he goes on to say the permanence of this symbiosis ensures that civil rights gains will be temporary and setbacks 
inevitable. So it really does seem like um, that he's arguing that in like in the bones of the United States, racism is built in. So I guess what I'm wondering is, well, what do we do? Like, what's the goal then in critical race theory? Is it is it to, I don't know. It seems like um, one thing that, that Bell points to is defiance, right? That that's mm. kind of all we can, all that black people and maybe white allies can do is to, to just kind of be this continual gadfly almost, um, but to not actually buy into the dream of racial equality, which is almost like this opiate of the masses. Um, <laughs> so I, yeah, I guess that was one question I had. Okay. If that's true, if it's, if, if racism is so baked into America that it becomes, it's permanent and symbiotic, then what do we do? What's the goal then? If it's not racial equality. Yeah, that, yeah. So I think with, with someone like Derek Bell, you know, he has his disciples, um, Crenza, Delgado, who are going to be more critical of his approach. Essentially, I would say that you're going to find schools in the same way that you would in any other intellectual tradition. Um, the main thing that I think they, most critical race theorists will have in common here, though, is the sort of critique of the incrementalism that they may have thought was present in the earlier traditions of, of King to some extent, mm -hmm. um, and some of the more religiously based um, mm -hmm. racial uh, folks or, or persons of color. So their biggest, the biggest thing for Bell, I think, is there's a sense of empowerment, he's going to argue, that will come from the fight. Okay. Even though it's the sort of Greek ball rolling on top of you and you push it up, there's a power there. Like you'll mm -hmm. feel good about it. I personally think, and that's just my argument, that that's a sort of nihilism. Hmm. Um, but I don't, you know, we're, that we're kind of bleeding into maybe some of the weaknesses. Mm -hmm. But I do, I think just from like, we could talk about a, a phenomenology of, of emotions and so forth. I think people would feel empowered from fighting back. It's kind of like you think of, Clearly, you've never been beat up, but, you know, someone's getting beat up and, and it's just like just fighting back gives you a sense of dignity. Right. So even if you lose, even if you lose, and, and in fact, Bell will say, we, we're probably going to lose. Um, hmm. That sense of swinging back is kind of like yours putting your foot down and saying, this is wrong and I'm going to die. So it's sort of martyrdom if we're hmm. analogously to, and you can tell this is where there are you can tell that in the roots of critical race theory as the patrimony of critical race theory, not necessarily their uh, later successors, but W.E.B. Du Bois, mm -hmm. right? Um, Martin Luther King Jr., um, the great Quaker tradition and the abolitionist movements. Mm -hmm. These folks definitely had an, are seeing Christ in yeah. the disenfranchised. And there's a sense of, well, going back to say John's gospel that we heard last week, um, we did we only went to seventeen and not eighteen. But Pilate says, you know, what is truth, mm -hmm. right? But there's a sense like if you're a Roman living in the ancient world, Jesus loses. Hmm. But for the early abolitionists, it's like this martyrdom is for the life of the world, right? Hmm. Now, fast forward, it, kind of with the boys, he's looking at it from more of a sociological perspective, right? right? He's trained under pragmatic traditions like from William James and others. Um, that's That sort of metaphysics of the movement is kind of, kind of falls off a little bit. But I think at the root of that empowerment move is 
martyrdom. Mm -hmm. And there's the empowerment of martyrdom. I think obviously it becomes, and you can tell with the questions that people ask about this, it's not as intelligible because it's like, well, how, what does winning look like? Like, it sounds like you want to root yourself in modernism and the more secular tradition. How is that empowering? So I think that you can hear both schools. I think that the tradition of martyrdom is it's, it's most coherent. That's what you're going to see from King where he's like, uh, I may not get there with you. You know, mm-hmm. that whole tradition of like, oh, he, he, he knows he's going to die. Right. Right. But he it's rooted in his Christianity versus the later traditions have sort of maybe not consciously, but they're still holding on to that without the roots. Yeah. So I think both of those are present. I think those who are more secularly inclined are going to talk about empowerment. They're going mm-hmm. to talk about the fight. They're going to talk about, um, you know, Black Lives Mattering sort of going down with the ship is empowering. And then I think those who are more rooted in, in the, the intellectual and religious and spiritual traditions of, of the Black church mm-hmm. are going to say, like, it's it's the Christ. It's, it's to become Christ, right? Mm-hmm. So... I think you'd see both, but I think just in general, um, you know, that's how most folks would would mm. divvy it up. So, do you think most critical race theory is kind of nihilist in that way? Is it is it a pretty well, significant departure from, say, the tradition of Martin Luther King, where, you know, I mean his 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 whole approach is still very much deeply steeped in, in Christian theology and a Christian view of the world. Um, yeah, I think there's different schools, right? Because sure. I think there are some schools who, you know, for example, this is a good critique. I'm not always sure what to do with it. But if you read Catholic writings from, say, the USCCB, um, Brothers and Sisters to Us, it's unclear. It's clear that racism is bad. Yeah. But it's not always clear, though, it's like, well, what's the right response yes. like from persons of color? Like, do they right. fight back? Right. Do they march peacefully? And this is kind of where we are today. Mm-hmm. People aren't, you know, the critique comes, well, well, I'm against racism too, but you shouldn't be doing this or right. you should be persuading and things like this. So I think the nihilism might come in. And I don't think those who have taken this approach would identify as nihilist per se. Sure. Um, that's more the philosopher in me who's like trying <laughs> to take things to their logical yeah. conclusions. But I think that the nihilism might come in when you depart from the metaphysical tradition, but also the rootedness in, in actual history of the Christian movement, where the, it's a limitation of the movement that sometimes gets fixated on the United States, the sixties, and they, they lose the sort of globalness of, and of the tradition. And so they're really not critiquing Christianity or, or anything. They're critiquing a particular flavor of it, particularly in the sixties, particularly, mm-hmm. you know, so right. It's particularism is both its strength and its curse. And I think the more one departs from the roots, um, I just think practically it becomes unintelligible. And then the sort of nihilism can just come into play when it's like, well, what is this about? If racism is permanent, what's the point? I think that's how most people would put it. Mm -hmm. Um, But I don't think that those who would say, well, the fight, and they would say almost like what we think, like a sexual assault victim or something like we wouldn't say that the person fighting back was a nihilist. We would say that right. they were empowered, they were um, and so forth. But I think intellectually, um, there's a whole flavor of them. And as a theory, there's I think the best versions of it are those who sort of go beyond the theory and use it 
for one aspect where there's still so much mm-hmm. uh, to process. There's still so much to think about. And even the why, <laughs> why is there racism? Sometimes that's not always clear. So Isaac Gotsman, um, who's also at Marquette, talks about like, you know, there's a lot of critical race theorists who want to talk about, well, let's talk about the economy. Let's talk about, basically give us something. We, yeah. we can't yeah. say that it just popped out of nowhere. So yep. I would just say it's there's a diversity of, of thoughts without naming all the individuals. And in the mainstream, that's almost like a, just like with religious traditions, right? There's like Catholicism in the books. And then there's like this right. interesting phenomenon on Twitter. <laughs> and, I, you know, it's, sometimes it's hard to tell which is which. But mm-hmm. I would say the same thing happens with crit- a lot of critical race theorists. Right. Some are very aware of the religious roots. Right. Well, and then you also get this kind of like pop version of theories too. You know, you see the same thing like <laughs> pop gender, th- like that. Like you, you know, if you read Jen- Judith Butler, but then the kind of like Twitter slogan bumper sticker version that emerges on on the more kind of popular level is sometimes very different and takes very different things for granted. Um, so, so even in the okay, so speaking of bumper stickers, this whole ban CRT. What is that about? So why are people so worked up about critical race theory that it even gets its own little acronym, CRT, right? And now, I don't know that this has ever happened. I can't think of another example where you have some kind of academic theory that has suddenly become so well known that you you see it on bumper stickers and it has its own acronym and everyone's fighting about it. From the local McDonald's to, you know, the the eminent Utah State University type institutions. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, what what's your analysis here? Like your your own kind of read about why Americans are fighting about critical race theory, why it's so divisive. Right. Well, I think a large part of it is. Again, I'm relying on Brad Gregory, who's Brad Gregory, who's not specifically talking about race, but he's talking about the birth of modernity, the birth of the nation state, the birth of secularism, so that it connects. Essentially, in the 60s, 70s, and the 80s, so think of like Margaret Thatcher, think mm-hmm. of uh, Ronald Reagan, and so forth. Americans never really got over the race question; they sort of went shopping, right? Um, and this is a problem. I, I, my favorite example of this is like the University of Alabama, right? Great football team. Mm-hmm. We, always number one. But go back and look at the records. Like there was a time where Tuskegee and these historically black institutions were number one in Alabama. And then all of a sudden, you know, Bear Bryant goes to uh, UCLA and they see Jackie Robinson and co. And he's like, I told y'all, like, we got to get at least three. And all of a sudden, the whole makeup of SEC football, as it's understood, is just Black folks. And then you look at the HBCUs, Morehouse, Spelman. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, there's like, a, wh- where did all the, what happened? Hmm. And a lot of it was entertainment. Hmm. There's a sense of, we need them on the football team. And so th- you lo- watch, think of movies like The Blind Side or Remember the Titans, right? Mm-hmm. They're wrestling with it on their bus trip. But when they come back, it, it's more of a speculative question or, or a thought experiment. Like, what does the crowd see? Are they just seeing a football team that got better and now one state? And so it's like, well, I guess, you know, so in a way they overcome some parts of racism. So maybe it's not as, as rigorous. You have to remember too, that a lot of, for a lot of Southern folks, 
they kind of forgot why they were racist, right? It's almost like in, in England and in Ireland where it's like, do you all even know why you hate each other anymore? Right. Like, not really. It's just kind of what we've always done. Yeah. But a lot of it was rooted in the emancipations, the, the 13th, mm-hmm. 14th and 15th, um, you know, different uh, amendments and things like this that we're dealing with. Basically, where did the slaves go now and whose jobs were they going to take? And so the hatred was built up over a very organic um, process that was kind of later on forgotten. But I think today, fast forward, COVID-19, uh, mm-hmm. it's hard to run away from it. I think COVID-19, I like to think of it, I, I think of the world in terms of staff meetings, right? <laughs> and they're like, all right, we got racism, we got climate change, we got healthcare, <laughs> we got, uh, you know, what say you? Do you want to get at all these today? And we're like, ah, no, that's good. Let's let's circle back. <laughs> and COVID comes and it's like a pressing matter. Like yeah. I said, what are we going to do about race? Mm-hmm. Because race in America, and here's someone like Brian Massingale or Lincoln Rice at Marquette are great on this. Race is too fundamental in the United States in particular mm-hmm. to be ignored. George Floyd really was the sort of Martin Luther moment where did Luther cause the Reformation? No. Mm-hmm. Um, the, everybody in, in the who had a brain knew that the church needed to be reformed. This is a sort of tipping point where all the things come together and it's just a storm. I think COVID was that for the States of like Hmm. COVID's happening. Everyone's locked in Mm -hmm. George Floyd happens. And it just brought to people's attention. Like no matter where you sit on the race question, what was clear is there's a black man Mm -hmm. on TV Mm -hmm. with a knee on his neck for eight something minutes how do we read this going back to the interpretive key right what do we what do we see and crt has been bubbling and bubbling in Mm -hmm. in the academies Mm -hmm. as a question of first legal scholarship and then through like gloria ladson billings at wisconsin it entered education mainly because Mm education is dealing with policies and stuff like that too and it was a sort of question that was brought into the table oh what kind of policies should we have in, in school settings and it was controversial in the academy Mm-hmm. But more and more, it became sort of leaked, uh, like gender theories and everything mm-hmm. else. It, it became sort of taken on on YouTube's and, and right. quick Wikipedia searches, and and all of a sudden, it was at the forefront of oh our, wait, our kids are learning about this and not really knowing what it is, except mm-hmm. for that it hates America and so forth. Mm-hmm. And what I think what that really showed. Is that in the United States in particular, I won't speak to all the other countries because I think mm-hmm. they have different things going on, but in the United States in particular, maybe South Africa to a degree, that the real religion, because there was no state religion, is the United States. Mm-hmm. And you can see it when it it's sort of health, it's sort of blended into different religious traditions. Hence, like when King is writing mm-hmm. a letter from the Birmingham jail, he's responding to Christians. He's responding to bishops and pastors, those same bishops, Bishop Joseph and so forth that go to Vatican II in the 60s are mentioning King. Like, Mm -hmm. hey, there's this guy who has a pretty serious response, right? Vatican II, believe it or not, wasn't just about the liturgies, right? (laughs) There was bishops who were like, whoa, I'm living in Savannah, Georgia. I'm living Mm -hmm. in Tennessee. I'm living in Alabama. I'm living in Mobile. Uh, The racism is palpable. We have different churches, different congregations, 
But at the core of it, and I think this happened simultaneously with Catholics who were European, who were whites, trying to assimilate, there was Mm -hmm. a sense of the rejection of the social tradition. Um, because America was functioning, the United States, I should say, was functioning as their real belief, their real loyalties. Their, it has its own liturgies. And what they were trying to do was take their religious traditions and morph them into whatever was popular in terms of the social order of the United States. So that's why you get um, slave owners and things who are go to church on a Sunday, vote for George Wallace the next mm-hmm. day. Um, who are both practicing members of their churches, practicing members of the Ku Klux Klan, there was a sense where there was a sort of, let's try to reconcile um, these true traditions. And in a way, let's get Jesus out of the way. Um, Mm. Let's make this more, and you can tell in its, I won't go into all the spiritual traditions, but it comes less and less about like, so what is a Christian supposed to be doing? Oh, just... He prayed, he's saved, he's good. But does he have to do any of these things? Like, that's ah, kind of inconvenient. So I think at the core of it, at the core of it, and I think that's what we're seeing more so than anything. And I love listening to both sides of this debate, but when you mm-hmm. really listen to one side of it, it's like, this is your actual religious tradition. You don't mm. get this offended at mass. You don't get this right. offended about, um, but the sort of hate to the popes and all this, I think underneath it, it's a sort of like, you are just supposed to follow orders of our actual sort of um, public religion that is the United States. And that United States, going back to Bell's arguments, unfortunately, is rooted in racial practices that are so permanent and ter- permanent in the sense of like if someone is raped or if someone yeah. is like that, that it's all, it's like it's going to be a lifetime of recovery because right, it's right. so damaging to a culture. So Mm -hmm. that's how I like to think of the permanency is like a trauma, a trauma happened. COVID-19 is permanent, right? Or we could say um, uh, 9-11, right? Never forget. There's a Mm. sense of like, that was so impactful. Right. But I think that's the real thing. CRT is the first uh, public United, it's or not the first, but it, it's a it's a very loud criticism of the U.S. Yeah, and I think for a lot of people, that awakens a sort of dev- devotion. Like, hmm. wait, what? But there are also critical scholars. I want to be careful who are also like, well, no, like critical race theory isn't this perfect tradition. Mm-hmm. But I think where where there's contention, where there's a lot of public um, aggression, is two sides who don't really understand. I mean, it's probably analogous to gender theory. Where people right. like, it's a construct. No, it's not a construct. Mm-hmm. And like, okay, Judith right. Butler does say that, but you've clearly never read um, right. what she's saying. Yeah. There's just a dollar ninety eight version. Yeah, um, that's sometimes helpful and sometimes not. But I think at the core of it, that the majority who happen to be white, who typically are of a certain religious tradition, can feel, in my opinion that the U.S. as we know it is going away. Hmm. Um, and now what that looks like, I have no idea. I don't think it's super clear, but I think COVID was like the really like, oh my gosh, like it's like a dying animal or something like there's something, hmm. it's way more um, f- fragile than we were led to believe. Hmm. So I think that's the, at the core, I think that's what people's reaction 
is is the kinds of reaction you see when someone's defensive like they yeah. know it's not it's not it can't be true at least how it's being stated in the in the main you know right so okay so in this like we're kind of in this moment in America where our union is very fragile and fraught and maybe falling apart I just had a conversation with David French about this um, a couple weeks ago because he wrote a book about, I can't remember the title now, but it's basically going through these scenarios of what the breakup of, of the of America could look like. And then you're kind of bringing in this observation that for a lot of Americans, the American civic religion is kind of their primary religious affiliation, even if they're also kind of like Catholic or evangelical, um, but that that's primary. And so because... CRT is critical of this ideal of America and um, doesn't really see it as salvageable in some ways. Like that's incredibly threatening, right? Is that, is that kind of your, yeah, it's incredibly threatening and there aren't obvious. I think that some obvious routes could be when King talks about how he's there to cash a blank check or, or something mm-hmm. like that, like, Hey, you said Liberty and justice for all you either mean that or you don't. Right. Um, so America does have certain principles that are loose enough to where maybe you could include everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, but we're, but the other side of that is uh, I think the critique of the U S is one that well, let's get concrete. So like an example would be the statues. So think of Baltimore. Yeah. Um, think of Missouri. There's a sense where in some ways the kind of racist founders were, were smart enough to know, like, you don't really want all these people voting because voting means like, you know, if you take a vote, they probably weren't going to want these. <laughs> right? They might not want to be slaves. Right? They're like, maybe mm. not into it. Yeah. And so there's a sense where like, People are like, why, why all the issues with the statues? And, and in a way, it's like, well, nobody asked. But if you wanted, <laughs> if you wanted a hot take, um, in a way, America's triumph is or its failures and its successes are intertwined because it's like it's clearly sort of working. Like more people are speaking, more minority voices are speaking, mm-hmm. but that just means, um, you know, immigration is changing the landscape of. of we could see it in a state like Georgia, right? Where it's like a blue state, I almost fainted, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but we can see though, that at the core of that is, oh, that's going to change who gets an office. That's going to change. And I think people, whether they can articulate it or not, can feel like, especially you think of like gender in your case, people can feel like something is happening that yeah. it's the world that maybe we liked <laughs> is gone right and so yeah. mask policies all these are all are all icons of like oh no mm-hmm. like what's happening so i think a lot of it is fear yeah and i think i think a lot of it is just rooted in that sense of like you know uh, there's a certain i will i'll say this there are certain versions of the u.s narrative that i don't think are possible right now hmm. i do think there's some on the table that we could reconsider but there, there's a lot of them that's just like yeah that we just can't hold uh you know this really started really and think about vietnam and, and world war ii and there was just a sense where it's like wait what are we fighting for abroad <laughs> because 
uh, like my grandpa who fought in Vietnam, he was called an inward all the time yeah. while he was deployed. There's just a sense of like, that can't be what we're here to do. Right. So that people start questioning like the franchise a little bit of like, wait, how are we fighting for all these freedoms abroad? And, and people like Muhammad Ali are like, have you not been to Mississippi? Like something, yeah. you know, you're saying communism is so evil, but you're just, have you just not ran by the Jim Crow laws or, I mean, Hitler and those folks had commentary on the American South and we're like, that's a little much. You know, <laughs> oh my gosh. So just putting wow. it in that sort of context, so they're like, well, what? It's almost like the US was sort of, we think of it like um, torturing. And Hitler's view was like, just exterminate. Don't carry this project. Like, wow. again, both are evil, but if yeah. you think about it from, from, from abroad, it was like, and the US is mm-hmm. just not being honest about what it's trying to do. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of that is is kind of frightening for a lot of folks because it means that the place that they love, the place that they, you know, think in high regard is 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 something, you know, maybe the equivalent of like a Catholic during like a, an abuse crisis. Just like, yeah. what am I a part of? Right. Like this can't be, you know. And right. so there's like a distancing. And if you don't see any other narratives on display. Yeah. Like there's no Jesus there. There's no Peter. There's no, <laughs> right. it's a little terrifying, I think. Right. So I'm kind of trying to think like, okay, in this, in this kind of war about critical race theory, I'm trying to think of like the best arguments on both sides. Like what are the, so some of the critiques I've heard of critical race theory or concerns are that it's almost this self-perpetuating and disempowering narrative, right? That it, it will actually perpetuate that collective consciousness of white people as oppressors and black people as victims. And that's kind of this inherently defeating and also vilifying simplistic narrative, right? So that's kind of one critique that it's actually going to be bad for black people, right? There are some some prominent black intellectuals who will make that argument, like this is not good. This is not a good way for black people to think about their own place in society. Um, And then, you know, there's also sometimes criticisms about maybe how, like what, like um, maybe, okay. So here, here, for example, like the assumption that anytime there's a disparity between racial groups that has to be because of some kind of discrimination that's happening. Right. So that, so I guess a criticism would be like that, that is a, is an overly simplistic narrative. Like maybe sometimes, yes, racism is at play. Sometimes it's not. Um, so that's kind of a, a criticism. I guess on the other side, so here's, like when I when I think about the like systemic racism, I remember like when I first started hearing that phrase, I was like, well, what does that mean, right? Like concretely, what does that mean? Kind of point to it or structural. Like if it's structural, you should be able to point to a structure like the education system or the criminal justice system and say there, like that is a racist structure. And that's very easy to do in recent, not that far, you know, in history, like we've talked about with um, the redlining policies and all these discriminatory, even post Jim Crow kinds of policies. But even thinking like right now, um, something I, I now think about with systemic racism, this is an analogy of 
maybe like family systems theory in the psych in psychology, right? So I've been in therapy for the last year. So um, <laughs> I've been learning about, um, highly recommend. Um, I've been learning about some of these theories and like, let's say I'm, I'm gonna draw an analogy here. So let's say in any kind of a family systems understanding, like let's say there's a family that, um, I don't know, the father's a narcissist, right? So the whole family system is kind of built around that narcissistic figure and everyone um, kind of takes a certain role in the system. And then you begin to internalize that role so that you feel like guilt and fear and shame um, when you're not playing the role that you're supposed to play. and But then you take that out to like the workplace, right? And you begin to like that filter that you've been raised and to perceive yourself in relation to this system, that becomes like the filter through all of your relationships, right? If you're, especially if you're not kind of consciously aware of it and trying to kind of overcome that. So when, when I learned about that, I began to think of that as like, is this, is this kind of what um, systemic racism, it, it's almost like this, like American society is this huge dysfunctional family system that we're all kind of a part of and we're, we're kind of just like born into it, but then we inherit these kind of roles and concepts and narratives um, and then internalize those. And that that is, is that a certain way of understanding maybe what, um, what people mean by systemic, almost like it's this atmospheric kind of dynamic that's always at play to a certain degree or another. Um, so that was one way in which I was, I was trying to understand it. But then the question becomes, even if that is a good analogy, maybe it's not. But then the question becomes like, what do you do about that? Like if you do, you know, wake up to that and become woke, right? Like if you do mm. wake up to that dynamic, then do you lean into it? You Do you lean out of it, right? I mean, that seems to be a debate in the kind of pro CRT versus um, anti CRT arguments, right? Like, do is the solution to lean into identity politics or is the solution to kind of lean out MLK style, right? And hope to transcend them, right? Because if you if you see like Kimberly Crenshaw, like she's explicit in her writing, like, no, the solution is to hold on to these identity categories as sites of resistance. Um, and that if you kind of jettison them too quickly, then you lose that you lose that potential for resistance. So um, I don't know. My problem is when I when I hear like intelligent critiques of critical race theory, I'm like, okay, they've got a point. And then when I hear really intelligent accounts of the critical race theory perspective, I'm also like, I don't know, they've got a point, right? I mean, there mm -hmm. seems to be bad arguments on both sides, but then there also seems to be some good arguments on, on both sides. What's your perception of the debate? Um, I don't know. Does it does it sound like I'm at all making sense? Yes, you made a ton, you made a ton of sense, and I think all of it is true in in different respects and at different times and different audiences. And here's where all my it's like the, my Isaiah CRT friends have left the chat. You know, um, <laughs> I'm going to lose some my three followers on Twitter. I think that. Part of it is, is let's go back to John Henry Newman in the 19th century, who is no black man, but has some good points. Part of it is we have to look at 
the European traditions that the United States inherited and what the alternatives were, right? There are other ways that we could have taken this. Hmm. Um, You know, John Locke and those folks were were, were racist, you know, Uh, they, but they weren't the only, only traditions that could have Mm -hmm. said something. I think overall, I think when we think about something Newman said is Newman is saying, look, the universities claim to teach universal knowledge. They don't teach theology. So either A, theology is not knowledge, or the universities are lying, right? So he's really making an appeal to Aquinas and, and in the West, but in the East, Gregory of Nyssa, Maximus Confessor, Isaac of Syria, mm-hmm. uh, Clement, uh, this idea that, wait, 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 well, we have to know the metaphysics. And theology then is the queen, right? And mm-hmm. I think what Newman was worried about is when these disciplines, but especially social science, right? Even John Milbank is going to argue that social science is just a sort of quasi-heretical uh, theology. And mm-hmm. in some ways, he's kind of right about this, right? Mm-hmm. Because it's like, what is it grounding it in again? Um, but mm-hmm. Newman and others are going to make this case too, that like a social science speaking dogmatically is not possible without running into essentialisms, running into so many issues that I'm sure you've seen in in the gender world, like where it's like they want to overcome it, but then by saying there's no truth, they claim a truth. And it's just right. Like what's it grounded in? Right. Right. Exactly. Right. Mm -hmm. And all the 19th and 18th century or a lot of 19th and 18th century thinkers, you know, you think of those good movies like uh, uh, what's the one I was watching Um, Highlander or some anyways, where they're like on what grounds, right? Like, (laughs) How are you making all these arguments? Like what? And if you listen to uh, CRT, one of the things that's doing different than the other sciences is it's not just describing, mm-hmm. right? It's it's it has an inherent like sort of we're supposed to do something about right, this, right? It's an activist, it's, yeah, it, mm-hmm. exactly. It's making moral claims. So I think without, if it's embedded in the theological traditions, then it's intelligible because mm-hmm. Christianity in particular has a way of saying. Jesus Christ is a particular Jew from a particular place, and yeah. all of that matters. Yeah. However, he's the universal Christ, right? He's mm-hmm. also he also is holding both without mixing, mingling, or confusion. All those types mm-hmm. of ways that Christians were uniting Plato and Aristotle and all these ways was because Christianity was not talking about ideas. It was saying that its metaphysics is a crucified Jew. Yeah. And that and that matters. But if you leave that tradition and you're you're trying not to make truth claims, but then you're in doing so you're making a truth claim, you're another vantage. It's sort of the postmodern um mm-hmm. problem of the meta narrative of no narrative is a meta narrative. Right? Yeah. So I think but that doesn't have to be. I think that hmm. as long as we remember that the the science's proper home, natural and social, is grounded in metaphysical traditions of talking about you know i think of someone like uh father sergey bulgakov in in the russian tradition of saying mm-hmm. or, or uh eric pozwara or hunter from baltazar when they're asking this basic question what is the relationship between god and the world mm-hmm. right how is god present in creation and i think if you think of someone like say gregory of nyssa who's really the first person 
who critiques slavery. So there's an analog to race, although not, he's not going after race per se. Mm -hmm. He's the first person to critique slavery as an institution. Um, In the fourth century, his sister Macrina and Basil start Mm -hmm. hospitals, right? Um, But I think there's no mistake that it was very much tied into how they understood reality, how they understood God's present in reality, how if, if God is sort of present everywhere present and fill us all things then creation is sort of divine mm-hmm. in the sense that it's god isn't in the world the world is in god or, or aquinas will say like ipsum esse subsistence like god mm-hmm. is being itself when you talk in those manners then you could say well god is present in all things and then you get the catholic social tradition of well then humans have dignity because christ mm-hmm. is the principle of creation and all this but i think when you depart from that tradition and you just want to if you're just going to describe, hey, we looked at eight black people and this is what we saw, that doesn't that tells you a little something, but then it's questions of quantitative and qualitative. Did you interview seven or two hundred? Right. Um, if you're looking at it from a critical race standpoint and you want to talk about the ordinariness and permanency of racism, but then you 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 have to, it seems to me, at some point, maybe not in that article, but in another space you have to explain yourself metaphysically. What is the relationship between God and the world? Why do human beings have this inherent dignity? Um, That's going to tie in with eschatology, Christology. I mean, it's Mm -hmm. all very intimately combined. And and I think there's no mistake when King writes his letter from the Birmingham jail, anyone can Google this, Mm -hmm. do a control F or command F for the elite among us. (laughs) And look, look, Aquinas, Uber, Augustine, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. King is citing them because he's saying this is where the, these are where my arguments are grounded in. Yeah. So that's it's kind of a one-two punch. I think critical race theory existing among theological traditions is helpful. Yeah. I think when it goes independent, like Newman says, and one particular science trying to make dogmatic claims with it, I just don't think. It will work. Mm-hmm. Now, I know that there's a lot of critical racers who are like, well, no, because all of those metaphysical traditions come from, right. you know, the bourgeois and all this. But, th- but that's yeah. not really true because most of these f- figures early on, Macrina, Greg Yunus, mm-hmm. live in Turkey. Yeah. Um, a handful in Syria, a handful in North Africa, a handful of uh, Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. So Christianity is rooted in, in history. And I think there's been enough critiques that could help CRT sort of flesh out what it's grounded in. Mm-hmm. But just like the gender theories, right, they can be helpful, but this, this, as soon as they start not acknowledging their undergirding yeah. premises, I think people are like, wait a minute, why do people have rights? Yeah. Like, you know, why do they have, again, not saying we're against it, it's just like, I'm, I just don't get how you got from an observation to this is what it is, mm-hmm. and then pretending like you didn't do that. So that's been my whole thing. It's like, I think that for Americans or for Christians, for people in general who are concerned about CRT, it's just put it back in the context of the mm-hmm. patrimony of, of those traditions. Think of it in terms of the different schools, right? Mm-hmm. Hinduism has, it's not really religion, but there's Vedanta, there's Bhakti, there's all these, every tradition has these traditions. Mm-hmm. And some of them, in my opinion, aren't good so there are forms of crt that i think this isn't going to work like Mm -hmm. we're making metaphysical claims we're pretending that we're not making metaphysical claims we're saying there is no truth which is the truth claim like and that that's just like not even a vicious circle right so i think 
that's my biggest sort of tie in, but recommend of like, I think what you're saying is right. I do think there's a sort of like toxic element. I do think there's a sense of like, we're all inheriting this, uh, you know, just like you said, in a bad home situation, like mm-hmm. there's just certain things that are just like sort of permanent damage. I think all this is so obvious. It's hard to even make it an argument. Yeah. I think where it gets provocative though, is when people get into the, so what should we do? Yeah. Exactly. And that's where it's like, there's no way you can give a suggestion for what you should do without talking about morality, without right, talking right. about, you know, so I think that's really the core issue is until CRT can at least say, we're only either going to answer these questions in the relay, mm-hmm. but we're going to hand it off to, um, you know, I don't know, Rowan Williams or something. We're going to hand it off to Cornell West for, for mm-hmm. the third leg. And then Jesus is going to take us home for the last hundred meters. Unless you do that, I just think it, it becomes like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, yeah. So wait, it is a construct, but then we're passionately caring about constructions, you know. Right. But in my opinion, only as a sort of historical challenge, I think only Christianity and uniting the particular and the universal and the, mm. has really been the only tradition to do it in a radically human, human yeah. way. But yeah. that that's kind of the how I would answer it is sort of a both and. Yeah. Ooh, Catholic move. You got to slip it in. Yeah. You got to do it. Um, Okay. Well then here's, so if we could do that, if we can take the best of CRT and ground it in a Christian understanding of reality and a kind of Christian theology, Christian theology and metaphysics, then, then what do we do? Right. Mm. Like what, what is the response? Like what, from a Christian perspective, what is the the right response to racism in our time? And I mean racism in this, in this kind of way we've been talking about it, this systemic, diffuse, atmospheric kind of way. Yeah. So I think the first thing, just for the, um, the other traditions, the Sikhs, the Muslims, the the uh, Mahayana Buddhists and all that, they have analogs to this because they're, they are grounded in the classical the, uh, theistic traditions. It's going to say mm-hmm. God isn't a being. God right. is God being is itself. Being. Mm-hmm. And that means that all finite beings are beings with end, finis, um, participate in infinite being. So being mm-hmm. with not end. In that sense, they're, we're all on the same page um, metaphysically. So I think they also have moves to this. I think first and foremost, I like to go back to Gregory of Nyssa and his critique of slavery, which happened in a sermon on Easter during Lent, which I think is just beautiful. Yeah, wow. He's grounding the reason hmm. that we can all agree this is wrong is dignity, which is mm-hmm. sort of the first pillar of Catholic social teaching, which is human dignity. Mm-hmm. Human beings cannot be treated in ways that are oppressive that discriminate, that keep them from the common good, that keep them from material goods that it takes to basically what are the goods that prevent you from praying, right? Mm-hmm. Human beings deserve um, to have solidarity and subsidiary, all these things. Mm-hmm. These are all grounded. I think these are the first ways to overcome it. It's just saying Genesis 1. We are, yeah. and all the great tradition, I know this doesn't get us much in terms of movement, but at least as far as intellectual, mm-hmm. spiritual analysis, mm-hmm. we have to say human beings have dignity. 
They shouldn't have feet on their necks. They shouldn't be enslaved. They shouldn't be, you know, aborted. They shouldn't, I mean, mm-hmm. all these things that just presuppose a world where either God is a big being like mm-hmm. Henry VIII or where somehow you can make the case, well, not these beings over here. Right. Right. There has to be a universal call yeah. that all of creation, says Paul in Romans 8, is groaning. Therefore, all of creation, right, First Timothy, um, is being saved, has been saved, hopes mm. to be healed, hopes to be restored, not just up, up, and away, but all of creation is mm-hmm. trying to be transfigured and transformed into Christ himself. So that stage, I think, is the first key, is Christianity is meant to first, through the Mass, through the Eucharist, through the sacraments, it's the beginning of the revolution. Because we become what we receive, ita misa est, we leave the mast, go and flood the world with, with Christ, right? So I think that's the first call is humans have dignity. We should be renouncing any systems. I don't care if they're left, right, mm-hmm. abortion, ecology. If there's anything that create, prevents a human, to keep it simple, from praying to God hmm. or from seeing God. Right. or from having the potential and openness to God, right. then that system must be dealt with. I think that's the key. I think mm-hmm. in the U.S. we get so sucked up and like, oh, it's ecology, lefty. You know, I don't yep. think that's going to yeah. work. Oh, abortion must be a fascist. Right. Uh, not, that's not a Gregory of Nyssa approach. Right. Certainly not Aquinas. There, there has to be a sense of, as Augustine said, omnia et per omnia, God is through all, in mm-hmm. all, everywhere. And therefore, mm-hmm. creation is really divine. You have to treat it with respect. So mm-hmm. that I think that's the first step is just just the recognition. And then hopefully, I've always liked a pretty good intellectual on this score, Jesus. Uh, he talks about how in his sermon, you know, blessed are the pure mm-hmm. in heart. And I think ultimately racism is a problem of seeing. And I think ultimately Catholicism is a religion of how to see, right? So we think of the empty tomb for the Christians, the Romans see it, the Jews see it, but what do they see, right? Jesus comes back, think of the road to Emmaus, they don't get it, right? The disciples are walking with him, I'm relying on John Bear and others, and they're just like, yeah, I'm not seeing anything. The person we were with got himself killed, um, and they're just like, He opens the scriptures. He breaks the bread. Thank goodness. Because otherwise, it was like, well, how do we see God? He's like, the church, the first sacrament, and you all are baptized, which puts you in me. And if you want to see me, these practices, first prayer, first certain, we call them spiritual corporal works of mercy, um, the treating the like going after those who, who basically there's things that are preventing them from seeing God. To me, that's where we start to build the kingdom. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of the plan. It sounds like in Romans from Paul is that creation itself is moaning in anticipation. And our job is to start building this. And sometimes it looks like institutional, mm-hmm. but obviously it, it does have to begin in the heart. It does have yeah. to begin with individual souls 
um, who begin to say, you know what, I can't be anti-racist and watch pornography. I can't be, hmm. it's all very intimately connected. I can't, yeah. um, you know, step over the poor or, mm-hmm. you know, Chappelle said, call Oscar a grouch instead of giving him something to eat. <laughs> it's, the, it's the poorest person on Sesame Street. You know? <laughs> and, and nobody's helping him, you know, he, he just tell, tell the grouch to get a job. So yeah. I think that's the beginning. It's just, it's a transformation of the heart. And of mm-hmm. course, Dorothy Day, Peter Marin, King and others, all of that starts in prayer and yeah. specifically the prayer of the liturgy. And of course the liturgy never ends. So I just think that's the, that's the, that's the core. That's why we're praying. We want to be able to hopefully think about Matthew 25 when we see the poor which are probably going to be persons of color. Yeah. What do we see? So do we step over them and we're like, huh, ah, lazy, you know, should have, should have, uh, should have paid attention in class, you know, or is Jesus going to say to us, like, you did it to me. I wasn't like around the person. I was in the person I was. Mm. And I think that that's the most telling of like, do we see Jesus in creation? Do we see him in principally human beings? Because if we don't, we'll find all kinds of reasons, racial, gender, um, political, to, it's not to say we can't correct people, but we'll start to do things that are so inimical to the gospel that I don't even know if we could be, call ourselves Christians at that point. Yeah. So that, that's where I would start. Obviously, that I'm showing my cards. Um, <laughs> You know, I like those cards. Right. I want to play with those cards. I, I yeah, I th- racism as a way of seeing and Christianity as a way of seeing. I think that is such a good framing that we're we're given this framework because of our sordid history in this in this country. And what does it look like to change the way that we see, right? And like you said, the Christian way of seeing is seeing all people as imbued with human dignity, especially the ones that are that our particular culture and historical moment wants to rob dignity from, right? Right. Um, and yeah, I think, I don't know. I feel like that's an awesome note to end on, even though I want to keep talking to you. <laughs> that, that's but that's fair. just, that's such a good landing spot, I think. Um, to, well, the, yeah. the only thing I was going to add to our um, Evangelish friends yes. is one way to think of this too is Jesus, strictly speaking, is talking about the permanency of, of sin in a yeah. way. I've been thinking about that actually, right? I mean, sometimes when I read about um, race stuff, you know, I just, I think, um, you know, I make analogies with kind of gender and feminist stuff. Um, and one way in which I look at gender dynamics is through the fall, you know, through Genesis three. Right. I mean, there's, there's this, like after the fall, one of the consequences is that, um, you know, you're two woman, your desire will be for your husband and he will rule over you. Right. So this dynamic of harmony becomes a dynamic of domination. And so there's something in which that, that is a permanent feature of our world, like our fallen world. Um, so it's not permanent in the eschatological sense, but it's permanent right. in the like historical sense. So how 
that dynamic plays out is going to change. Sometimes it'll be worse. Sometimes it'll be better, but it will be there. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I guess I'm wondering, yeah, is that, is that a way to also understand race? Except I guess one question I would have though, because in part of our conversation, um, you were talking about historically, you know, the ancient Greeks, for example, like they were super xenophobic, but they weren't racist in terms of like skin color, right? So there is a sense in which the whiteness and blackness thing isn't, hasn't been permanent in that it, it emerged historically at a particular time in kind of the colonial era. Um, so in that way, is it less permanent, right? Is there, mm. is there maybe more hope that, not that dynamics of domination, um, will ever go away or even say like personal racism will ever go away. But is there perhaps more hope that if there was a time before whiteness, there could be a time like after whiteness, right? I don't know. Mm. Maybe I'm being too optimistic. No, I think, uh, I think, I think you're being great. I think the biggest thing with, with uh, Jesus is in a way he's giving, which goes to show you how brilliant all of this really was the, how radical this movement was he's giving the medicine for the ionios the age he's saying look in this age sin is so and death rich mm -hmm, right that's yes. death is everyone is going to die all of you are going to die in every age and every ionios and every age you're going to die here is the prescription to conquer death and if you conquer death you will conquer sin and so i think what jesus was aware of mm -hmm. is it's going to look different. It might look like, um, you know, the monks of Mount Athos in Greece sneaking in Jews into the mm -hmm. um, into the monastery. It might sometimes look like uh, Pope Pius the Eleventh or Twelfth um, writing an, an encyclical condemning um, anti-Semitism. But at every age, there's certain evils that mm -hmm. manifest that they're not permanent. There may be permanent in this age, which I like mm -hmm. how Jesus puts it, in this Ionios, mm -hmm. but it's not permanent eschatologically that in the end, God will be all and all. Like this, mm -hmm. this is really the hope, which is like, look, in this age, wars will be among you. In this mm -hmm. age, sometimes there'll be racism, sometimes gender discrimination, sometimes the divine right of kings, sometimes. Mm -hmm. But if you can follow this way, right, the way, then you can conquer death which is the the biggest issue and then you can conquer sin because it's going to manifest everywhere to the degree that people die there will be sin so i think mm -hmm. for us the, the best thing to do is to take those prescriptions and just continue to be transformed so that we can see what he's even talking about um so that we can see where it's showing up in subtle unique ways uh, because otherwise, we I think we always forget uh, the movie A Hidden Life is good about this. Yeah. Um, we won't, like, good German people who got so caught up in the Nazi thing, it was like they couldn't even see how those two things couldn't yeah. be brought together. And so I think that's why prayer is so important, the liturgy is important, all of that, because hopefully it's changing our ability to even recognize mm -hmm. what's become what's become the norm. So I, I like what you say. It's I don't think it's a, that racism has, and here Bell's not really talking about this, but it doesn't have a, if Christ is who he says he is, it doesn't have an eschatological permanency. Right. 
but it will perhaps in this age, but not in the age to come, secula, seculorum, mm-hmm. right? Um, we don't, we can conquer aspects of it. We can bring things into it. But I think at the end of the day, we have to remember that um, going to documents like Gaudium et Spes and stuff, we're not trying to become a political party or something. We're just sort of trying to on earth as it is in heaven, you know? Yeah. So I think that, I think if those, if that's kind of held together and we don't get fall to the temptation of like, well, here's the perfect party from a Jesus program. Um, Cause that always ends up a mess. But as long as it's like, nope, I'm going to go after wherever, what did King say? Like injustice anywhere is a threat to justice everywhere. Yeah. I'm always going to try to go after and not just, racial issues it's all very in, yep. to use that word it all intersects yeah. you have to sort of conquer it christ-like like universally so you, you yeah. can't just be like well i'm i'm more of a social justice catholic that goes after gender equality it's mm-hmm. like no no you gotta yeah. if you recognize that anywhere yeah. and and it looks different it's not always a protest um but i think the first part i think that all christians can start with is just i'm doing it currently is I need, I don't know if I can see, I need to continue to pray, continue to um, rid myself of the passions, things like that. So I think Mm -hmm. that's, I think that's the, really the key and, and remembering that Jesus isn't just talking about just racism. He's talking about sin and death, um, which are the real, those are kind of products of it. Mm-hmm. Um, manifestations or forms, mm-hmm. but they're not like the only bad thing going on. So we have to be careful not to look for another identity in a movement when our goal is to, you know, flood the gates, flood the world with Jesus. Mm-hmm. So that that's kind of that's kind of my approach, and obviously that co- sort of goes beyond critical race theory. But I think every theory should be from a Christian vantage you should leave it behind immediately. Um, like how Dante even leaves theology behind when he's with mm. Bernard and he's going into the, the, the Empyrean and yeah. he's going into the, to the Rose, you know, because mm-hmm. um, we want union with God. We're not trying to be nouvelle theology theologians <laughs> or, you know, we're, we're trying to, our goal right. is union. Yeah. You know? Amen. This has been a production of George Fox digital. If you like what you're hearing, subscribe to the George Fox Talks podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts on your phone or computer. You can check us out on the web at georgefox.edu talks, where we have videos, publications, and more. And you can also find our playlist on YouTube at youtube.com slash georgefoxtalks. 